Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 532, Dying on the Installment Plan. This week, Peter takes a bit of a tumble after last week's high, and we're going to come face to face with what it means to take up our cross, discovering that while discipleship is an invitation, yes, it's also coming with a challenge. So let's pick up where we left off at Matthew 16, verse 21. Hello again. As we uh, begin uh, part 32, episode 32 of this series on Matthew, we we actually finished what is essentially Act 1 last week when, uh, when Peter made the declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Act 1 was establishing Jesus is the Christ. Now we move into Act 2. The Christ must suffer and die and rise again. And we know we're moving into a second part because Matthew often uses almost code phrases to help us see that we're now going into a whole other section. And where we're starting today is he says, from that time on. It's a formula for, that he uses very effectively, and we look for it different times through uh, this gospel. So now, both in a new direction and in an acceleration of events. Uh, from this point on, uh, Jesus and the disciples are moving unwaveringly uh, toward Jerusalem. So up now, because of the declaration that we just saw, uh, the disciples are clear on who Jesus is. But now they're about to learn that he is the suffering Christ. So let's start Uh, We left off at verse 20, so let's go to verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This brief exchange sets the tone for this new section of Matthew's narrative. Jesus' words here present a paradox regarding the Messiah that he is both the victorious, saving Messiah, and he is the suffering Messiah. And Peter's refusal to accept this reflects the, the disciples' inability to grasp the whole truth about Christ. So let's look at verse 31. He, uh, 21, rather, he says he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Jesus is telling them that this journey into suffering and death in Jerusalem is not just a possibility, it's a divine necessity. That's why the word must. Jesus is preparing the disciples for the fact that very shortly they will begin a final one-way journey to Jerusalem. Now, this must have been a shock to all of them. They'd come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and for them and for all Jews, that meant with the coming of the Messiah, it meant moving into a time of great triumph, that the Romans would be finally pushed out. There would be an age of peace and blessing. So they're wondering, how is it possible that the Messiah could suffer? 
How could he be executed? What did Jesus mean by being raised? They, they were in a time of great perplexity. And they began to realize from his words that Jesus was headed into great danger. And if it was dangerous for him, it was going to be dangerous for them. Now, in this, we see two views that are colliding, and they continue to collide in the church. One view is that success is God's way of blessing. It's the sign of his approval. If God loves you and blesses you, he's going to give you financial success, career success, whatever it may be. But the other view is that suffering is the way of the Lord. And we'll look a little more at that in a few minutes. But here is where it's introduced. Now, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. First of all, we're surprised to see Peter move so quickly from his declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, to these words. It's interesting that with his his revelation that Jesus was the Christ, that, that in spite of that, he dared to speak correctively to Christ. I, I think there's a, a warning and application for all of us here. He'd just been received like the ultimate affirmation. But when we are affirmed, we have to be very careful because it can easily turn into pride, into overconfidence. Now, what we see here in this contrast um, between his declaration and now being rebuked is a reminder of our own inconsistency when we're under pressure. I think all of us would be surprised if we could see a playback reel through a week or a month or something, that when we're under any kind of pressure, that that we can so easily waver. We can be inconsistent. We can say one thing to one person, another to another person. It's interesting because if you look at the Greek when he said, never, Lord, the word for never is actually only used twice in the New Testament, here in Hebrews 8, 12. And it can be translated, God is merciful. So what's going on here? Well, the translators give us this so we'd understand the overall meaning. But God is merciful, I think, suggests that Peter cannot understand how the Father in his mercy could ever allow this to happen to Jesus. This will never happen to you is about to be identified as worldly thinking by Christ. This is a perpetual warning to us, not not just personally, but to the church, to not be worldly. By that, to not be focused on any teaching that presents suffering as against God's will for us. We need to be really careful of that. Now, when Peter said, this will never happen to you, there's an echo here going all the way back to chapter 4 when Jesus encountered uh, Satan, the enemy, the accuser, uh, in the wilderness. And if you look at verse 6, Satan had said this, if you're the son of God, jump off the building, the temple, 
For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus rejected Satan there. And now in verse 23, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Can you imagine standing in Peter's shoes, the shock and the hurt that these strong words would bring to Peter? He's just gone from being called the rock to a stumbling block. The church father Christostom paraphrased Jesus' words to Peter in this way. You seem to suppose that to suffer is unworthy of me, but I say to you that uh, for me not to suffer is the devil's mind. I think there's a few lessons for us in this episode. First of all, we must constantly be relearning what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is a journey marked at times with correction, perplexity. Whether we like it or not, discipleship is not learned all at once. It is a slow and lifelong process. Jesus wasn't saying, Peter, somehow you've turned into Satan. Rather, that Peter was being influenced by the purpose of Satan, which is to tempt Jesus to avoid the cross. The same thing going back to the wilderness, chapter 4. See, when Peter says, oh, this will never happen to you, Jesus immediately recognized that the true speaker of these words was Satan. And that's why he said, get behind me, Satan. Another church father, Hillary, said, all unbelief is the work of the devil. The Lord, troubled at Peter's response, rejected the instigator of that unbelief by denouncing him by name. Satan is the instigator. Now, the contrast of this passage with with Peter's God-breathed revelation, you are the Christ, it tells us a simple truth, folks. Sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we don't. And we must not avoid that. It leads to pride. It leads to rigidness. It it leads to all kinds of things. The reality is, even in faithful discipleship, sometimes you and I are going to get it right, and it'll be wonderful. And sometimes we're going to get it wrong. I think this is true for us as individuals, and if we're honest, I think it's true for the church. We can look at church history. We can look at issues that have arisen in the last hundred years. Uh, we can look at a time, for example, in America, where the where the church uh, the, they use scripture to teach that that God's favor was not on African Americans. We look at that now and say, how could that be? That that there was a curse. Uh, uh, going all the way back to Ham, there was a curse on them. I mean, that's just wrong. There's all kinds of examples. We need to face the truth. Just like we sometimes get it wrong, sometimes the church does. You know, this whole passage calls us back again to the Beatitudes. The first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. The third Beatitude, blessed are the meek. They, they shall inherit the land. Again and again, Matthew takes us back to that 
Beatitude Foundation. Here's a second thing we can get from this episode. He says to Peter, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He's going to develop this more in just a few verses. It's about self-protection, self-centeredness versus Christ-centeredness. Jesus is equating this self-protection and pride with Satan. Now, how can we tie that in? If you look at Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14, Scripture's talking about the fall of Satan. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. Two names for Satan. You have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world, for you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Therefore, it's Satan who is continuously tempting us, all humankind, to focus, sometimes even to obsess on on seeking after greatness, acclaim, success. So since Satan is the source of these attitudes, of these beyond attitudes, these, these drivers, this is why looking after these things, success, acclaim, is the exact opposite of the way of the triune God. It's also, to keep this very practical, it's why we must always be suspicious of a success gospel. Because Jesus said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The success gospel is absolutely focused on human concerns. So Jesus' strong words, get behind me, Satan, emphasize he is completely disassociated with what Peter is saying. He doesn't discuss it with him. He doesn't debate it. He doesn't try and temper it. He just says no. A third thing we get from this is that Peter teaches us that it's very possible to be Christ-centered, but not to be cross-centered. Christostom again. He said this, the larger picture has not yet been revealed to Peter, and he was confused and overwhelmed. Peter had learned that Christ is the Son of God, but he had not yet learned of the mystery of the cross and the resurrection. I think that we must be so careful not to be so devoted to, to the victorious Christ that we find ourselves ignoring or maybe even subtly opposing his teachings about dependency, weakness, even failure. For years, I've loved Song of Solomon 1.5, uh, 8.5, I love 1.5 too, I think I'll get to it later, but 8.5, which says, who is this coming out of the desert leaning upon his lover? I've mentioned that verse before in this series. He wants us walking in brokenness and weakness and leaning, dependent, a leaning heart. You know, I, I taught I taught my sons. I have now 
overheard a couple of times them teaching others. If you're going to follow someone, and it is good to follow someone, that's part of being discipled, but choose to follow someone who walks with a limp, who walks with a limp, because blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful. The the only way to get there is to go through the difficulties on the journey that we begin to walk with a limp. There's a fourth message in this episode. See how rich these few verses are? Peter sinned in what he said. We've established that. And Jesus certainly didn't ignore his sin, but he confronted him. Get behind me, Satan. That's quite the confrontation. In the strongest terms, he confronted him. He does not ignore sin. However, he did not disqualify or somehow lessen Peter um, in, in his eyes because, because of his sin. It's not like, okay, now Peter is, you know, a second tier. In fact, just a few days later, Jesus took Peter up to the Mount of Transfiguration, which we're going to talk about next week. I can hardly wait. Probably the most mystical passage in, in all of Matthew. Shortly after this episode, he specifically sent Peter. Matthew is very clear on that. It was Peter he sent to engage in a miracle of extracting a two drachma coin from a fish's mouth. He took Peter with him at the garden of Gethsemane into his greatest spiritual trial. He deliberately restored Peter after his denial at the end of John's gospel. Remember what I told you in the last episode, and we need to get this, folks. Jesus, even, even when he said, okay, you blew it, Get behind me, Satan. That, that's, that's antithetical to who I am and what my purposes are. That's strong. But even then, he saw what was best in Peter. God sees what is best in you. That's why, here we are, Song of Solomon 1.5, I am dark yet lovely. I, I love that verse. I feel so full of sin, I blew it so badly, and he won't let us go down the tube. He says, no, no, you're lovely, you're beautiful to me. The life of Christ is in you and I, and this is the life that is most real. No matter what, that's what's most real about you. And so we can't, when we blow it, even big time, we can't, we can't feel like somehow we're disqualified because you are not disqualified. He sees what is best in you and what is best in me. One of my favorite contemplatives, I've said many a time here, part of my morning time is I, I have a whole bunch of different contemplatives, and I take some time before I start reading the scriptures and praying and so forth. Julian of Norwich, wonderful, wonderful, 14th century, uh, mystic really, contemplative, her, her, probably her most famous quote is when Jesus said to her, because she was wrestling with all this stuff, and he said to her, all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Well, let's move on to the next section. 
It's about the cross and self-denial. Just as we jump into it, I want to say that effective disciple-making is built on two things, invitation and challenge. We live, if we're a disciple-maker, we live with the gift of welcome. We live inclusively. We live deliberately as disciple-makers. I have men and women who very specifically know that I am mentoring them, that, that, that it's very intentional. And when I do it, it's built on invitation and challenge. And we are now approaching one of the most challenging discipleship passages in all of Matthew. When Jesus challenges us, we must not avoid it or somehow water down his words. Let's look at the verse, starting at 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. These five verses are the most concentrated ethical teaching of Jesus since the Sermon on the Mount. And, and as, we, as we look at this, remember, folks, we should never make excuses and we never should avoid the ethical demand of Jesus and his teaching. So, verse 24, Matthew shows us that discipleship is not sort of an abstract ethical program, learn these principles. I came from a time in the 70s where, and early 80s where so much of the teaching was that way. It was just, here's the principles. If you learn them, you're a disciple. I promise you that is not true. Discipleship is a call to a person, Jesus. First phrase we notice is, he must take up his cross. You know, as Jews living in Roman-occupied Palestine, they would all know what take up your cross means. It is a clear sign of death. We must remember there was a very literal aspect to what Jesus was saying. This was true for the disciples. It was true for the early church. Take up your cross seems to be the, the single initial step. But then he says, and follow me. This leads to a life of following. When I was a young man, there was a terrific Bible teacher who I got to sit under his teaching some, and his name is Bob Mumford. And he said that when he was young, he was reading the gospel. He said, that's it, Lord. I want to be a martyr for you. And he says the Spirit spoke to him clearly. Don't worry, Bob, you will. But you're going to die on the installment plan. I never forgot that. 
By the way, in Mark's gospel, these words are spoken, but just before they're spoken, he calls the crowd to himself before he speaks. I I think Mark's trying to emphasize that these conditions for discipleship are for all believers. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This makes no room for a detached kind of discipleship that's based on correct doctrine. This is a call to active and obedient faith. You see, at its heart, discipleship is about shifting the center of gravity of our lives from, a, from a, an essential concern for self to a reckless abandon to what Christ says and wills. St. Hilary said this, Jesus taught that they should deny themselves for the sake of themselves. That is, that they should not wish to be that which they had once begun to be. Isn't that interesting? That this sets us free from ourselves. He, he's calling us to a sustained willingness to say no to ourselves and to say yes to him. At its core... The call to bear our cross is believing that Jesus is more real than death. That's radical, but that's the core message. Now, traditionally, and this is really important that you get this, traditionally there are two interpretations for take up your cross and follow me. The first one is the passive interpretation, which, by the way, for those uh, of us who've grown up in, in a, uh, a Reformed tradition, and in fact the majority of the Reformation churches, teach that taking up your cross should be passive. It should be a, a willingness to suffer uh, that we haven't chosen, but, but we'll bear it. Um, Calvin said that this type of cross-bearing is, is what brings about transformation, Romans 8.29, right? To be conformed into the image of his son. The other view, <clears throat> excuse me, of cross-bearing is the active view. It, it means the willingness to be intentionally countercultural in faithfulness to the culture of the Jesus way. Let me say that again. Active cross-bearing is about being intentional, intentionally cross-cultural. Not just to be ornery, but in faithfulness to another culture, the culture of the Jesus way. Uh, A writer that I like very much, a famous book he wrote, uh, The Politics of Jesus, John Howard Yoder, specifically applied active cross-bearing, for example, to the decision to be a non-violent disciple of Jesus. Those of you who might know Shane Claiborne, he's written all kinds of great books. I think my favorite is Irresistible Revolution. He's a clear example in our own time of active cross-bearing. Now, why I wanted you to pay attention to this is because how you and I interpret this passage, whether it's passive, it's, it's putting up with what God said, or, or it's active, largely determines that our personal direction, and frankly, as a church, determines the direction of a church. And then he says, take up your cross and follow me. The, 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 probably the best translation of the Greek there is, and live a life of continually following me. 
It's a life-sustained loyalty. I suddenly remembered today a Eugene Peterson quote. Eugene Peterson wrote many wonderful books and uh, the message, for those of you who read that Bible, he said, discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. Isn't that terrific? We get to verse 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Did you know this is the single most repeated saying of Jesus in all the New Testament? He said it again and again. It must have been pretty important, pretty foundational, pretty essential. So first of all, we see here that Jesus is laying out clearly the cost of discipleship. It is something we choose. Notice he said, whoever desires. There was never, ever any manipulation or coercion with Jesus. We need to watch out for that in the way we disciple others in, in, in all kinds of spheres. Watch out as either doing it or receiving it. Jesus never used manipulation or coercion. Christostom paraphrased this verse in this way. I force no one. I compel no one, but each one I make Lord of his own choice. Isn't that good? Now, because we so often hear phrases like, oh, this is my cross to bear, or um, I'm just denying myself, we've lost the force of Jesus' words. He was speaking to the twelve about the literal losing of his life, and then he knew it would be their lives. Eleven out of twelve, church tradition and history tells us, were martyred. The, the earthly threat of suffering and death is put into perspective here because what Jesus is telling them is he will rise above it and his, his disciples are invited through loyalty, steadfastness, steadfastness, a long obedience in one direction. They're invited to do the same thing, to rise above it. Secondly, according to Jesus, there's only two choices with two results. We either live in radical authenticity, in radical trust, obedience, hope, and I would say love, or we fail to live authentically at all. The disciple's life is one that dares to decide that Jesus is what life is all about. Therefore, following him is the greatest adventure in life. I remember vividly, it'll, oh, I think it'll soon be 45 years ago, I had, a, I had a Christmas job. I had a lot of different jobs while I was going to university, and, and I was delivering mail, and I remember walking up this street, and uh, it suddenly hit me. I'd been walking with the Lord for one year, and it just hit me like a thunderbolt. I'm never going back. I'm never going back. And uh, and I think that's what Jesus is calling us to. Remember the in John 6, after he preached, and the people were so offended, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and he turned and he said, are you going to leave me too? And, and it was Peter who said, well, where else could we go? We're hooked. We're too far in. You're the only one with eternal life. There's a, there's a great irony in this verse. It's filled with paradox, maybe the ultimate paradox. It, 
the way to gain is to lose. And if you lose, you're going to gain. I mean, if that isn't a paradox, I don't know what is. So I want to get down to something very practical here. Again, I said before we started this section, we cannot avoid or sidestep or soften or water down what Jesus' words are to us. If there's no losing going on in our lives, then we must examine the nature of our following, of our discipleship. If we, if we lose our preferences, our priorities, our goals that are based on our wants, it is bound to manifest in some concrete ways. I said to you a few minutes ago, this is not theoretical discipleship. This is where the rubber hits the road. It's bound to manifest. It, it may affect what our job is or where we live, certainly how we live materially, what we give ourselves to in our time and our resources. Discipleship is radical. I, I, have, a, I have a dear friend. We did quite a lot of ministry in the 2000s. And, and one day he was invited to go to a remote part of China and speak to a house church. There was 200 people packed in this little tiny house. He could hardly breathe. And uh, they had him start at 8 in the morning and go till 11 at night. I think he must have had supernatural empowering. But just before he finished one night, he had a prophetic word. And, uh, and he said to a young lady something like, God is calling you to step out from where you are and go to a new place because he has a job for you to do. And then he finished up the meeting and he went to bed. He got up in the next the next morning to start the, the next gathering and he noticed she wasn't there. And he said, where's so-and-so? And he said they all looked at him like he'd lost his mind or something. They said, well, you're the one who gave her the prophetic word. So when you went to bed, we gathered around and we prayed and we prayed until Holy Spirit told us and her the city where she was to go to. And so she went back to her house. She packed up her things and she's gone. She's taken a train to the next city. This, this was a doctor who just, that's radical obedience. Now, I think I'm going to tell you a little bit about our story, Christina and I. Not that we're some superb example of this, but I wanted to put some hands and feet to this whole issue that, that it's going to manifest in concrete ways if we're truly going to lose our lives and follow him. Um, you know, I, years and years ago, um, the Lord had given me a, a terrific job. In fact, as it turned out, and it was all his grace, I certainly was nowhere near the top of the class. To my knowledge, I was the only person um, in my graduating class, it was an education class, that got a full-time job. In those days, it was an overabundance. It's kind of boom or bust with teaching. And I had this great job, and I loved it, and I was doing what I loved to do. I was teaching music and choirs and all kinds of stuff. And the Lord spoke to me about going to another town, oh, just about 500 miles away, which would mean giving up my job, you know, partway near the end of the first year, 
and I, I didn't know what I would do. I need to tell this quickly. But I was really sure about it. And I talked with Christina, and I, I we just waited. And, and then one night we met with two friends, and one of our friends is very prophetic. And we know that, a history of real accurate prophecy in our lives. And he said, I don't think you should go. I said, okay, well, maybe that's settled. And then we all just started to pray, and suddenly he began to weep and sob. And he shared a scripture, and it was that God saying, go. We were, uh, and that was a radical thing for us. When I ended up pastoring my first church and, and got a job teaching music and so forth. Um, a few years later, we were back in Vancouver, and the Lord spoke to me uh, really, really clearly that we were to go to central Canada, to Ontario, to plant churches. I'd never planted a church. I pastored that one pre-existing. But the Lord just kept speaking through Scripture and words. And again, uh, what I did, what Christina and I have always done, is um, we waited till both of us heard specifically from the Lord, and as it turned out, with Scripture. And, and we shared it again with the, the, the people we were the most closely related to, and we felt, yes, we're to go. And we went, we ended up pastoring or planting a series of churches. Uh, and it happened again and again. We went back to uh, BC, uh, <coughs> our spiritual parents, out of the blue one day, while we were visiting them, said, I think God is telling you to move to Vancouver and plant a church. Again, I waited, and I had three different prophetic people with, with strong prophetic ministry, strong history. In fact, a couple of them, you would know their names. And they just said, this is the Lord. And again, we're now down in Albuquerque because the Lord spoke to us really clearly. And uh, again, it was three people who didn't know each other, but all three of them had history with us and said to go. So. I want to just give you some guidelines on this. We have, we have, in our determination to follow the cloud, to follow Jesus, he's moved us around over the last 40 plus years. And I must tell you the truth that I've never met a really effective kingdom builder who did not literally sacrifice large things. Again, it could be job, where we live, how we live. I've never met one of, a, of an effective kingdom builder who didn't sacrifice large things. Now, lest you suddenly think, oh, I want to go do something right now, I want to give you a few guidelines for making a major change. I just told you our, our story of moving, um, major moves. One, two, three, four, five major moves. Every time it involved prophetic confirmation, and we only moved when both Christina and I independently heard specific confirmation from the Lord, usually through Scripture. It didn't happen when we were together. It was independently, and we did nothing till we both heard. This is the third thing I want to tell you why this is so important to have to have these prophetic words, these scriptures where the Lord speaks to you because they become an anchor. 
because I promise you it will be tested. Every time we move out in obedience to the Lord, it will be tested. Let's move on. I just wanted to give you something practical there. But but I don't want to let up. Following him, you can't you can't go somewhere. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be going. It may be literally moving like us, or it may be moving into something new that's out of your comfort zone, but you can't go somewhere until you're willing to leave somewhere. And like the early church, like some of our brothers and sisters overseas, some will lose their lives, some do lose their lives for the sake of Jesus. But for most of us, it's dying to our self-will. But again, if this is real, it will mean fundamental change. These changes are like markers on our journey of following Jesus. They certainly have been for us. Now, I want to read you a few quotes from George MacDonald. George MacDonald was a 19th century writer, preacher, theologian, a Scotsman, who was the primary influence on C.S. Lewis. And uh, if you want to read uh, something really good, find a, a book of his uh, collected called Unspoken Sermons. But let me give you a few quotes on this very same theme. He says, you ask, what is faith in him? I answer, the leaving of your way, your objects, yourself, and the taking of his and him, the leaving of your trust in men, in money, in opinion, in character, and doing as he tells you. Elsewhere, he says, instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, now listen to this, ask yourself whether you have today done one thing because he said do it, or have once abstained because he said do not do it. He also said to do his words is to enter into vital relationship with him. To obey him is the only way to be one with him. I spent quite a bit of time on one verse because it's a critical, critical verse. Remember, the most often spoke verse uh, in the Gospels of Christ. So let's look at verse 26 and 7. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. <coughs> Pardon me. Matthew presents this saying, it's, it's almost like a, a, a business sense or a transactional sense. He uses the word profit and exchange. One of the church fathers' origins said this, there is nothing in a person that he can give in trade for his life that will buy off death. God, however, has ransomed us all with the priceless blood of Jesus, so we are bought with a price. So, first thing I want you to notice in this passage, Matthew frames this whole section, going all back, all the way back to last week, he frames it with the phrase, Son of Man. Verse 13, now 27. Matthew, remember, structures his gospel very intentionally, very carefully. We've said that at numerous times. So when he talks son of man, Matthew is presenting son of man in, in three main ways. Number one, son of man refers to the earthly ministry of Jesus. Secondly, it refers to the suffering servant of God, especially in his passion. 
and primarily it refers to one who comes again in glory. Let me give you a few verses. Matthew 24, 27, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Chapter 25, 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Chapter 26, From now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you see this connection, Son of Man and glory? Matthew will present Jesus in his glory in the very next chapter. As I said, the transfiguration is probably the most mystical episode in all the Gospels. Secondly, in this passage, we must never lose sight of the eschatological meaning of these verses. That means the meaning that points to the second coming of Christ that points to the end times. And, and he says that a man shall lose his life. Some of your Bibles will say soul. The Greek is psyche, which literally means life, not soul. So how did this happen? Well, because the word has evolved for us over the last 100 or 200 years. Soul for us is, is, means the place of thought and emotion. Um, rather, pardon me, soul before 200 years, that's what it meant. But now more recently, it's come to mean spirit. We kind of use it interchangeably with spirit. But, but in the scripture, it, it really means the thought and emotional life. So, because Jesus is the one life worth living for, number one, there's a natural understanding here. That at the end of our lives, all things that we accumulate, that we accomplish, don't really matter. And you know, for, for many, this is going to be a painful realization. But there's also an eternal spiritual and I would say absolute meaning to this. The New Testament is very clear. There will be a day of judgment for everyone. I, I'm sometimes surprised when I, I hear Christians talking as if because they have uh, given their lives to Christ, that Christ resides in them, that there will be no judgment. The Bible teaches clearly the opposite. For example, Romans 14.10, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We're going to carry the sum of what we have built our lives upon with us to a time of judgment. One of the clearest passages on this is Paul speaking in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15. Let me read it to you. The work of each builder will become visible, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on a foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but the builder will be saved, but only through fire. He's talking about the consequences of our choices. Christostom, again, he understood that Jesus was being merciful by laying out these consequences right here in this context. You know, he, he softens 
his saying, but by the rewards, the blessing, but also, quoting Christostom, also the penalties of vice, since not so much his bestowing blessings as his threat of severities is more likely to bring ordinary men to their senses. He's saying this is serious. Verse 27, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father. He's clearly saying that that his glory and the glory of his Father are one. Christ reveals the Father's glory. Next chapter, the Father's going to reveal Christ's glory. This is all about that word I've taught you, perichoresis. It's the Trinity where they, they, they give glory and honor to one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For Matthew, we live out our discipleship through our works. We just saw that right here. Let me just make sure. Oh, I got to go way up. Let me make sure that we see this. And then he will reward each according to his works. Now, for Matthew, we live out our discipleship through our works. For years now, I've noticed that in the last public sermon of Jesus that Matthew presents in chapter 25, where there's the great separation of the sheep and the goats, it is not based on their faith their doctrine, but their practice. Did they feed, give water, clothe, etc.? Now, these works are initiated and empowered by the Lord. You know, the New Testament writers would not allow for discipleship to be theoretical. Another day we'll talk. I think there's been some real misunderstanding of what Paul meant by uh, justified. We'll get that another day. But they would not allow for theoretical discipleship. James 2, 14 and 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? So faith by itself, if it is no works, is dead. 1 John 3. I love 1 John. Chapter 3, 17 and 18. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. One last George MacDonald quote. To hold a thing with the intellect is not to believe it. A man's real belief is that which he lives by. What a man believes is the thing he does. The last verse, 28. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There has been so much written about this verse. There's been so many theories about what does it mean they don't taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let me just very quickly run through a few of them. He says, some standing here will not. In other words, 11 of you, but not Judas, will encounter Jesus, both after his resurrection and when his kingdom is increasingly visible. A second and very common one, um, the transfiguration would take place only six days later. 
One of the church fathers, uh, Leontius, said this, It was when he had been transfigured on the mountain that Christ the Master showed in some small way to his disciples the glory of his unseen divine kingdom. Others say he's referring to the resurrection. Others say it's at Pentecost. Some say it's at the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 or at the second coming. And this is a short list. I could give you longer. Let me just say this, and then we'll wrap it up. I think it's best to see this saying that some of you will, you know, will not taste death, to see this as a more general reference. It's not a specific event, I don't think. Rather, I think it's, he's talking about the manifestation of his kingdom, his reign being established after the resurrection. Because he's saying, some of you are going to see this. Disciples, what were they going to see? They were going to see a rapid multiplication of disciples, the establishing of the church. They were going to see a mission. This entirely Jewish world was going to break free, and there's going to be a mission to the Gentiles. They were Some standing here will see the gospel of Jesus proclaimed throughout the Roman Empire. That would have been shocking to them. That's enough to say on that verse, but I didn't want to just skip over it. So let's wrap this up. Matthew has presented us with both the hope and the security of our true identity because the life of Jesus resides in us. Like Peter, we must learn to be neither indulgent of our sin nor horrified by it. Remember what the Lord said to Julian, all will be well. We've been confronted in these passages today with the essential cost of following Jesus as a true disciple. The disciple's life, to repeat, is one that dares to decide that Jesus is what all of life is about. It is more than the way we see ourselves, which dictates how we will live with our preferences and our priorities. This is our self-will. This is the paradox. To lose Our self-willed life is the way we will find our true life in him. Jesus becomes the, the captain of the ship of our life. Well, we only covered eight verses, but these are rich and they are challenging. I want to really encourage you, those two points that that understanding that Jesus sees the best in you. He does not ignore the sin, but he sees the best. He knows who you really are. And secondly, that if we're going to lose our lives, it's going to manifest itself in practical ways. And I think we need to ask ourselves some hard questions. God bless you. Uh, if you'll stick around in a minute or so, Tim and I will sit down and, and uh, talk about this a little more. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Okay, uh, you you were worried that you perhaps were too dogmatic, but I don't think so. I think that um, I think there was some 
hard stuff for us to hear today, uh, some challenging stuff, but uh, that's what the Word of God is supposed to do. When, yeah. we, when we read Scripture, if we're not challenged and convicted, then we're probably not reading it right. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's true. And, and as I said again today, that, you know, two foundations for effective discipleship are both invitation and challenge. Challenge, yeah. And... Uh, and I think we need to challenge because Jesus certainly challenged in the passages we read today. Yeah, yeah he did. Um, before we jump into a few questions that I've got, I wanted to say that today's episode is once again brought to you by the Christmas catalog, which I did not bring with me today. Uh, instead, I have got for us uh, a little card uh, that the Impact Nations uh, website has available. So you can go to impactnations.com slash Christmas and pick out any gift on there. Uh, so often we are shopping for uh, our loved ones that we're not sure what they need, what they want. Um, but you know what? If you're part of the Impact Nations family, my guess is that members of your family are also passionate about seeing lives rescued yeah. through the power of the gospel. So uh, wouldn't they enjoy receiving a gift from you that actually is a gift for a, a very vulnerable person, a vulnerable family on the other side of the planet? Uh, so we've got cards for every single gift in the catalog this year. You can, uh, as you give a gift, you can say, yes, I'm giving this on behalf of a loved one and then you can actually type up a little note tell us who you're sending that to you give us their address and stuff and we will put a physical card in the mail the very next day um, with your personalized message in it uh, and it will be mailed as long as it takes for the post to get there but like i said it'll go into the mail the very next day and that's in canada the united states and australia they are being shipped from within those countries uh so they'll get there within just a few days so uh, again with your personalized message it comes in an envelope that's even got your return address in it so it looks like it came directly from you uh it's pretty cool and every single card has a different photo on the front with somebody who's just being blessed by that that type of gift and explains the gift a little bit um so I would encourage you, head to impactnations.com slash Christmas. It's not too early to get your Christmas shopping started. Uh, and maybe you want to get that shipped to uh, yourself uh, so that you can put it under the tree for somebody as well. So a couple different ways you can do that. But impactnations.com slash Christmas. Don't miss out. Get started today. That's all I have to say about that. Uh, okay, I have questions. Let's talk uh, works versus grace. Because you, you finished up talking about that verse uh, 27. Uh, and it got me thinking, I'm just about to start Galatians where Paul is practically yelling at the church, churches in Galatia saying, Hey, what happened? You started off with grace and now you're just right back under the law. What's the difference between being under the law and having good works being a reflection of your walk with Christ? That's great. Um, I think an awful lot of it is motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, if if we are doing it under the law, we're doing it basically because we feel like we have to. It's a responsibility. Uh, for some of us, given a tradition of how God was presented, we're doing it because we don't want him to get di- disappointed or even angry with us. Uh, under grace, it's uh, – <laughs> It, it becomes a promise. We do those things just as an expression of love. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, we do those as we step out, there's empowering. You know what I've noticed in ministry for years um, where, where the Lord, you know, delightfully just empowers, whether it's healing or preaching or whatever. I don't feel the empowering until I step out. Yeah. 
And I think it's the same with this issue. As we step out in faith um, and in just as an expression of adoration for the Lord, um, that uh, that that's that's grace. So when when Jesus in this verse twenty seven talks about being judged according to our works, mm-hmm. that, you know, judgment is a hard word, and uh, sometimes it makes us a little uncomfortable. Is he saying behave yourself or else? No, no, he's not. It's it's much more. It's deeper than that. Uh, it's almost more cosmic than that. The whole movement of of the cosmos moves in the direction of mercy and love, etc. And you've heard me preach on that. Um, I believe, and I and I, I didn't have time to sure. really develop it. Yeah. But in in those three verses I gave you, all of them are Pauline scriptures. Yeah. The last one, First Corinthians three, um, it is it is that what we do we carry with us and the consuming fire of mm-hmm. Hebrews is not a consuming fire of judgment and anger. It's a consuming fire of love that purifies. Mm-hmm. And so um, we don't stand there, oh no, am I going to get to heaven or am I going the other way? Yeah. This is about my life really does count. It does make a difference. It isn't just, did I pray a prayer or not? Yeah. My life makes a difference and has an eternal consequence. I believe with all my heart that that, that new heaven and then that new earth, everything is renewed and new, but we carry, we carry with us blessings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's what it's really about. Did I make that clear enough? I think so, yeah. Um, this is more of a comment, not a question. But your story about that that young Chinese woman who was in that mm-hmm. meeting received yeah. a prophetic word and was gone by the next day. Yeah, it reminded me actually of my reading of just this morning. I was reading in Acts thirteen of the commissioning of Paul right, and Barnabas, right? And realizing, you know, that, that the verse one of chapter thirteen lists off these five different, very different, by the way, very diverse, broad leadership of the church in Antioch, and and then verse two. And then they commission, they send out Paul and Barnabas. And I think, well, man, that was 40% of their leadership of that church. Like that, I think sometimes as we talk about counting the cost for ourselves, one of the things we also need to realize is sometimes that means we're actually going to lose loved ones to the mission. Like mm-hmm. we need to be aware and we can't hold on to people uh, – and I think this is important for parents sometimes to, to think about as well, right? If we're going to raise our kids to be kingdom-minded, to be followers of the way, there's going to be a cost to us in in that if, if there's going to be a cost to them. When they make that move, that means, ah, they're gone. Yep. Uh, and I'm sure that those leaders of the church in Antioch were feeling that. Like, oh, boy, you know, here's two dynamic leaders, two dynamic speakers who were uh, really carrying a lot of weight in this church, and suddenly they're gone. Isn't that interesting? Because this morning, not in the context of this, while I was driving to work, I suddenly was remembering, I was thinking about church planting, and as you know, we planted a number of churches. But I suddenly was remembering those Sundays that we sent out Hmm. planters. And I remember the first time uh, we sent out 40 people uh, the first time. The second time we sent out 120 people, including elders and leaders. 
and so you know we felt it. Yeah. And and so it's funny. I haven't thought about it in I don't know how long, and suddenly it was in my mind. Maybe it was a prep for this question. Also, you touched on another thing that I think is very important for us uh, is that we we love our families. And I, I, you know that I'm all about us being a strong, strong family. And, uh, but family can never be an idol. Wow. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. Indeed. That's good. Um, you talked about how Jesus never uses manipulation or coercion yep. in, in his disciple making. Yep. Can we talk about that a little bit in terms of what are some of the danger signs? Like, what are some examples of what we need to be wary of ourselves when we're making disciples? But also, if we're being discipled, what, like, where do we go, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't how it's supposed to work? I trust, as a disciple maker, Mm -hmm. uh, on this issue, I trust the Lord, the Holy Spirit, knows how to speak to the one I'm discipling. And... I um, have to, I had to learn to not say, you know, I've been praying and I think that maybe you should. Hmm. And if you hear that coming to you, um, you know, I've even heard people say, you know, the Lord told me I'm supposed to mentor you. (laughs) Well, I I say, get in your car, get on a bus, get on a train, (laughs) go the other way. But, but. It's it's trusting the Holy Spirit. True discipleship never does the Spirit's job. Yeah, and uh, so I think you have to watch out for that. I think we have to really watch out. You know, you've heard me say a, a many many times that contrary to what we think, God is never angry and He's never disappointed in us. Yeah, when we hear in mentoring, kind of the sound of disappointment. That's not the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, we, God is an affirming God. Mm. And uh, so those are a couple of short answers. Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. Uh, all right. This last question is more just a little bit of fun because you, I know you uh, were an English lit man and you quoted today out of Isaiah 14, talking mm-hmm. about uh, Satan and, and oh, some yeah. of what happened there. And it got me thinking. It's a question I've actually often wanted to ask you, and we just never got into it. Um, but I was reminded of Milton's classic epic poem, that Paradise Lost. Yep. And I wondered how much of that uh, – and, and I'm aware I'm way off topic, but I don't care. Uh, how much of, of his poem, Paradise Lost, was biblical and how much was uh, made up extra biblical, just some fun? And and then s- s- question number two is how much has that infected our understanding yeah. of, of, wow. um, of Satan and okay. the spiritual realm? Well, I can only give a very vague answer because Milton was not one of my specialties. Yeah. I had to read Milton, but I haven't read him in years. Um, but I know this, that uh, there certainly was some scriptural basis, mm-hmm. right? Including this passage Including that, that passage, you yeah. remembered. And you said, and how much was his imagination? How much was his strong reform puritanical ah. theology? Hmm. Because he he was a dyed-in-the-wool Calvinist. Hmm. And so that's another part of it. I'm answering your question with a question. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Now I got to go back and read it again. Um, I bet there's an audio book. Um, 
I just want to say that I, I do want to encourage people to to dip into George MacDonald. Mm. You know, we, we Protestants all kind of semi-revere C.S. Lewis, and he was beautiful, wonderful. But his eyes were opened largely by reading George MacDonald. Mm. And in George MacDonald's day, he alternated between being invited to come to churches and being called a heretic. You know, the, <laughs> the, the Presbyterians didn't know what to do with this Scotsman. But you will see some wonderful, wonderful things yeah. that um, he is so Jesus-centered mm -hmm. in his understanding of discipleship, and he's a realist. Yeah. So some of the quotes that I gave you, yeah, folks, we all need to ask ourselves, so what did he tell me to do today? Yeah, that was powerful. Yeah, remember yeah. when we had uh, Cherith Nordling on the first time, she, she just said in passing, and when I got up this morning, I just said, well, Jesus, what are we doing today? Mm, yeah. That's a reflection of, I think, a very healthy yeah. theology of mm, Christ. Yeah, it's a good practice to be in. Good. Well, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, we, I think we've left you with a little bit of homework, too. Maybe go find uh, find a book to read from uh, from George MacDonald. If, yeah. if not Paradise Lost. If not Paradise Lost. Either one's a good read. Uh, I think you should get the cliff notes for Paradise Lost. <laughs> Probably. It's a bit of a read. Uh, we are here on Facebook, uh, YouTube, every Thursday at 3 p.m. We'd love to have you with us. Uh, if you got questions, send them in to podcast at impactnations.com uh, because we'd love to discuss what you guys are thinking about, what you're wondering about. Uh, I'm sure that some of this teaching has challenged you. Uh, if it's encouraged you, let us know that too. Podcast at impactnation.com. Uh, and in the meantime, have a great week. We'll see you again next week. Bye-bye.